Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. You are all my children now. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello, and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise. One film at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is my co-host, William Thrasher. Welcome back to the podcast. And this time around, the man of your dreams is back. That's right, we're talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. (laughs) We're in the middle of looking at the first uh, handful of Nightmare on Elm Street films and uh, a lot of a lot of cool stuff so let's uh, let's get cracking uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 came out in 1985 so just one year after the original uh, if you don't know releasing sequels you know back to back one year after the next uh, means the movies were um, knocked out really kind of shit out really quickly that's an extremely fast production time um, yeah, they directed- wasted no time with this with Nightmare no. being such a huge hit I hear thumping on my end. Um, I'm by myself in the living room. There could be Airbnb people having sex in the basement. I don't know. Or it could be um, a ghost. Ah, a ghost. So right. do you think in Germany they say it's das Geist? Uh, I do, yes, yeah. Um, or they or, could say ghost. I mean, they, you know... In Germany, they teach many languages to students in their schools, so they should do that here in the United States. Well, like if you're in France, it's phantom. Yes, um, I, th- I but I think uh, I read somewhere the uh, French title for Ghostbusters is SOS Phantom. I believe um, that is which, true. Yeah, which, which never stops to give me a laugh. Uh, this movie was produced again by Bob Shea, written by David Chaskin, based on characters created by Wes Craven, starring Mark Patton, Kim Myers, Robert Rustler, Clue Gallagher, Hope Lange, and Robert England, with music by Christopher Young, cinematography by Jacques Heitken and Christopher Tufte. It's unusual to have two DPs, huh? Um, this What's has it? a... a Oh, go on. Oh, so like direct, directed by 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 Jack Shoulder. We'll we'll go into to more detail on this later. But you, it, it is it is competently directed. But you can tell it is not a uh, Wes Craven film. Yeah, he's a very workmanlike director, and I don't think it's an insult necessarily. But it's just yeah, Wes Craven is more um, oh more dynamic camera angles among other. Th- I mean, the writing too. You can tell it's not Wes Craven's script either. Um, off a budget of three million, this made twenty nine point nine million, so still pretty healthy profit. And uh, I'm sure this did better than the first because you had in eighty four, uh, you had VHS. You know that was that was starting to be that was a big thing. So people were aware of the first movie on video and leading into the second film, whatever. Um, and this film is uh, noted now, I think, um, for its gay subtext, which could or could not be intentional. I've heard different stories on that. 
Um, and you don't have to watch it that way, but it's pretty hard to ignore, uh, in my opinion. Well, that's that's the interesting thing because this is this is one of the most interesting and and yet most ignored of the Freddy movies. Whenever I hear people talk about uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, this is usually the last film that anyone will mention. And even if they do, they will only mention it in light of the homoerotic subtext. Right, and um, you know we're not—we don't have him as a guest on this episode, but he'll be contributing in a segment. Um, oh, probably in the next month or two. Uh, the Mark with the C, the fantastic indie musician who does our theme song here for Sequel Cast. Do check out his website, Mark with the C. Com. And he comes he in to record is, it every week. He just he had an appointment, so he had to leave right after. <laughs> that's right. He, he had to leave song. right after performing the theme song live in his sweltering Florida record home studio. Um, he said he he views this film as a uh, as a tender love story between you know two friends, where one friend views it as something more, and it's not reciprocated. Um, in fact, to prep for this. I watched, uh, they're, they're, oh, I don't know, like in 2011, 2012 or something, they came out with the, the Blu-ray set of Nightmare on Elm Street 1 through 7. Mm. And the last disc is a bonus disc that has an exclusive documentary uh, that is not available in later reprintings of the set, I guess, to save money. It's a 30-minute documentary, pretty short, look at the whole series. You won't learn anything new, necessarily, but they do talk to um, film critics who have some good comments on the films, I think. Uh, and you know, one of which is um, oh, I, gee, I don't know the the critic's name, but um, is that the Never Sleep so, Again documentary? Uh, it's not. Never Sleep Again is excellent. If you haven't seen that, oh. listeners, please do. It's a feature length, uh, more than feature length. I think it's like four hours or something. Look at all the films. Oh, wow. Have you seen it? No, no, but I want to. Yeah, they do a great job talking to all the cast and crew and directors. And at that time, they were still alive uh, for the most part. Um, I, I don't think Johnny Depp participates, but pretty much everyone else does. Uh, anyhow, with um, what I was saying is um, an act. They they talk to like a I think he's like a film professor or something, some sort of uh, academic type in, in queer studies, and he mentions that in this film you could view um, Freddy as uh, the hero's queerness trying to get out of him. Huh. And he's trying to, which I never thought of it from that point of view. When you, when people talk about the gay uh, content uh, of this film, they talk about, you know, they're, I assume, referring to the relationship between the main character and his best friend, and how he always leaves the girl to run to his friend's house and all that stuff. Um, but not that Freddy itself represents a repressed homosexuality coming out because he just can't hide it from people anymore. Uh, and unfortunately, I already saw Elm Street 2 before watching that documentary, but it makes me want to watch it again from that lens and see what I think about it. Uh, but then uh, Elm Street 2, let me give a quick high-level summary, and then we'll talk about the movie as we do here on Sequel Pass 2. Absolutely. So it's been uh, five years after the first film, and the Walsh family has moved into the home that used to be owned by Nancy. And now her that, family. That means this movie takes place in the future. Mm, yes, and I'm not even sure what year the original is supposed to take place. And I've heard the um, this movie isn't great with their canon of having stuff match up. <laughs> but so be it. Um, and instead of the main character being a man, uh, or yeah, instead of the main character being a woman, this time it's a man, a high school student, Jesse, played by Mark Patton, and. Uh, 
he has, you know, nightmares about Freddy Krueger and uh, his, his gym teacher picks on him and his friend, make him do extra push-ups and stuff. Um, and he has this uh, girlfriend played by Kim Myers that he's trying to flirt with, but he, he just acts really weird, really intense. Uh, we got a good 80s dancing montage, which we'll get into. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, he um, is, is sort of tempted by Freddy Krueger's claw to, to do the killings, and Freddy wants to use him to get into the real world. Uh, this movie has a, a, a grave misunderstanding of the rules of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, well, is, is, is it a misunderstanding, or is it that the uh, canon had not quite been set? That, that's fair. I think you're right. The canon had not quite been set, but it's very... And even enough, you know, Freddy does get in the real world at the end of the first movie. If, in fact, you view that as a real sequence or a dream sequence, you know, whether it's if you think it's real instead of a dream sequence, which they always make that stuff. Uh, in this series, they're good about playing with um, that sort of uh, subtle nuance of, is it a dream or not? Ooh. So, um, Jesse has to sort of struggle this uh, with this. Uh, on the one hand, you know, he can um, kill those who have wronged him, but on the other hand, he uh, is, a, is a suspect in, in killing his gym teacher, and uh, a lot of things happen, and then there's a final showdown. So that's Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, that's my trademark shitty uh, synopsis. When did you first see this flick? Uh, I did not see this until just the other day. Really, that surprises me. Wow, I thought you'd seen all these films before. No, well, no, well, this this was never this was never on cable at the time when I was really staying up late and watching a lot of horror movies. Ah, on, on USA, I, I assume, or like uh, Sci-Fi or USA Sci-Fi Channel, um, local syndication. TNT didn't really do horror movies; they did more action. Okay, neat. So, um, how about that? And, and what did you think about it? I really, really enjoyed this movie. Cool. I don't think um, it's as good as the first one, but I, I love a sequel that is trying to do that is really trying to do something. Yeah, I'll give it credit. It's not as lazy as you would expect um, uh, a sequel release this fast to be. And uh, I, I first saw it in, uh, gee, I, I was in just starting out college, I think, and. Um, Freddy vs. Jason was coming out, and my friends and I were excited about that. And I had seen, oh, maybe like the first one on TV once or twice, but to prep myself, I watched the first four Friday the, thir the 13th films and the first four Nightmare on Elm Street films. And at the time, I worked for Blockbuster Video, so I could rent those movies for free, um, which was a big deal at the time. So I could, anyway, I took advantage of that. And uh, it, and I, I remember I, I went, stopped by you know, Blockbuster Video, which is where I worked at the time, picked up those movies, rented them for free, uh, and my boss was behind the register, and he said, Matt, you're not supposed to rent crap like this. You're supposed to rent new movies to tell people to rent the new movies. <laughs> and I said, it doesn't say that in the, it doesn't say that in the employee manual, and I walked out. Well, well, hold, hold on, though, because wouldn't, wouldn't the profit margin be better on an older movie? Because the investment's already been made? It's not about profit margin. I think his argument was you uh, you should be informed and be able to make, um, which I think this is ridiculous, but you should be able to make smart recommendations that are um, ideal for each customer 
that is asking you questions. You don't want to make a bad recommendation. And it's like, we're not fucking mind readers. What, I, had to, what, I had the same shit when I worked at a, a used movie store. What, 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 if, what if this is exactly the type of movie that would be the right recommendation for that customer? Right. Well, I mean, I rented these for myself in, in this, but you're right. Yeah, not everyone just rents the new shit. And I, I think um, Blockbuster Video, they're... For those that don't know, listeners, Blockbuster Video was a retail chain that, you never know, we could have younger listeners, right, um, that uh, rented, you know, videotapes and DVDs and Blu-rays to customers, and uh, you had to go back and physically return it to the store. You had to return it to the same store you rented from, and uh, if you turned it in late, you would get uh, extreme late fees, and right, I have this right, don't I? Oh, no, no, you, you do. I just... Yeah. I just I just want to remind people that big big businesses don't care what you want; they will tell you what you want. Uh, very true. And on that note, Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge. I don't know why I said that. Like John Lovitz. Okay, I have um, to ask: yes. Who is Freddy getting revenge on? Yeah, it should have been called Jesse's Revenge, right? But then yeah, nobody knows who Jesse is. Yeah, it I, just sounds cool. I don't it, know. it feels like. It feels like the poster came first. That's what that title feels like. It does. And uh, you wanted to talk a little bit, uh, before we talk about the film, you wanted to mention, uh, talk about Jack's shoulder. Um, why don't you do that? Oh, no, just the... the so you, you can tell from the very beginning that this is not directed by Russ, Quave, by Russ Craven. But it is... It is, it is Competently, it is competently directed, and, I, and I'm trying not to like damn with faint praise. I mean, the direction does everything it needs to do. There's nothing particularly experimental or daring, but you see everything on the screen. And I was looking at Jack's shoulder. He's got a really, really interesting filmography. Among Doesn't he? The yeah. other, I mean, among the other things, you know, he did. Uh, he before this he did the horror uh, movie slasher film Alone in the Dark, but some an interesting. Uh, let's see, he did uh, Wishmaster Two, Evil Never Dies. Now, wasn't the original Wish, Wish, Wishmaster a Wes Craven film? No, Wes Craven was an executive producer, but he didn't direct it. Oh, that's right. Now, what what's really though fascinating here is that he also directed the 1996 Generation X pilot. It was released as a TV movie, but it was an in, it was intended to be the pilot for a live-action X-Men series for the Fox Network, focusing on newer, younger mutants that maybe the audience wasn't going to be all that familiar with. And the X-Mansion in Generation X is the same one they used in the feature films. Which Do, do you think that was intentional, or do you think that mansion just has really good rates? Um, I just think it looks like a mansion for it looks like it's a real nice looking mansion I, I'm talking about exteriors not interiors um, right, right. yeah uh, the one on his filmography that jumps out to me is a, a TV movie Vietnam War Story 2 uh, from 1988 um, it's a bit of an anomaly it's a sequel to Vietnam War Story and um, now that I read about it I, I really want to see it and it might only be available on YouTube or VHS or something because uh the Vietnam War Story movies, and I'm just learning this as I'm reading this right now. They're anthologies. Yeah, anthologies, right, yeah. Each, you know, three 30-minute stories, and each director did a different thing. And I think that's... Um, I've almost never heard of an anthology war movie before. You hear of anthology horror movies all the time, creep show and whatnot. Um, but I think that's pretty neat. Um, might have to get back into that. But anyhow, yeah, Jack Shoulder, he's done a lot with the horror genre. Alone in the Dark... 
is a um, well-respected film. I haven't seen it. We're referring to the original Alone in the Dark movie, not the one based on the video game starring Tara <laughs> Reid and uh, directed by Uwe Boll. Um, Freddy's Revenge. Right, so, so, so yeah. this is this is great. So. Uh, the the movie the movie wastes no time starting with the the nightmare imagery, but it, it begins no. just so so mundane with with you know typical high school kids, even though they're in their mid twenties, uh, on a, a school bus. And so I was watching this for the first time with uh, my wife and uh, and, our, and our friend Kitty, and the the moment I see the first person come onto the bus, I'm like, wait a minute. Is that bus driver Robert Englund? And you only see the bus, the, yeah, the, prof- yeah. the profile cool? of the bus driver right. for a split second. But Robert Englund cuts such a nice profile. Like, immediately I know, oh shit, we're already in a dream. I got so excited. Well, and recall the first film ends with her in a bus, right? In, no, no, in a the, car, convertible. I'm sorry. Okay, I don't know. I, I guess I get it confused with this one. But yeah, it's a good way to do it. But then. What happens on the bus? Um, I don't. It reminded me of, of all things, uh, beneath the planet of the apes, really? with all the lightning. Yeah, with the lightning and the smoke and all the weird like uh, earthquake stuff going on. Oh yeah, and the bus driving into the desert and like the the, the yeah yeah. So with some of the imagery. So this whole segment and this carries on through much of the film. This whole opening segment has a very Evil Dead Two vibe. And a lot oh, of I that never spirit of that. continues throughout the film. Right. I it's, love uh, the model work. I love the forced perspective. I love Freddy coming down the bus, raking his claws on everything. It's it's a it's just wonderful, wonderful surreal horror images. And it should be mentioned, you know, even though this is the second Nightmare on Elm Street film, Freddy Krueger has not become the pop culture icon yet, right? They still haven't. Freddy Krueger hasn't become the real Freddy Krueger as, as people know and love him. Well, that was so, another thing. Is like people yeah. is is every uh, is that my uh, my wife and Kitty were like waiting for him. Like, when is he going to start saying bitch? <laughs> yeah, um, you know this scene in the bus in the beginning. Uh, not to harp on it too long. I watched this movie, oh, five years ago, four years ago with some friends. Had sort of a Halloween house party, and we cool. showed this movie, and uh, it was was with some. Um, younger people and one of them and, and she was maybe six maybe seven, probably seven years younger than me um, you see a kid with a boom box on a, a big hulking boom box on his shoulder yeah. right at the back of the bus and she said oh man they really exaggerate what um, <laughs> the stuff people used in the 80s movies and my friend sitting next to me, who's my age, I'm you know 35 now, so I've been 30 at the time, said, "No, no, dude, n- like, n- no, lady, like that's that's how big boomboxes were." And yes, people carried those monstrosities with them on the bus, walking on the sidewalk, uh, even had you know music playing out loud. Uh, some of the models of boomboxes, you could separate the uh, the speakers Speech. from the main chassis, right? So <laughs> you and your friend could listen to it on either side of the. The bus. Um, yeah, my my parents had that same uh, that same type okay. of box. Yeah, cool. I, I I miss mine. I I had one had uh, dual cassette decks, and you could speed dub music, rip music, so to speak, um, from one tape to the other at a higher speed. Do you know I um, recorded an early audio commentary on one of those? Oh, I, I uh, for what? 
<laughs> I had I had used I went I went through a phase where I would make audio tapes of TV shows or segments of TV huh. shows I liked. Okay. Like I think I, I had one not, of SNL yeah. sketches. I had one of I had one of uh, like Super Mario Brothers Super Show animated segments. But I remember hmm. uh, before kind of before kind of moving out of that that hobby, I took. I took one of the recordings of a, I think it was a Super Mario Brothers Super Show animated segment, and dubbed it, but also dubbed it with me like talking about it or, or, or describing what it was. I was doing something like I was putting in like MST3K style jokes every time there was a pause in the dialogue. I did. That was great um, technology. Yeah, because I didn't have many friends by myself. I did a radio show. Nice. And I would dub music in between and do um, stupid comedy sketches. I'd be imitating the Beatles, but then I didn't really know who the Beatles were. So he would just be like, oh, I was in London recording a song. He was very good, had a lot of notes. You know, just just nonsense little kid stuff, I guess. Oh, yeah, uh, I'm the Secretary of Education for the United States. Oh. That's right. Um, man, Dana Carvey did a great Paul McCartney. I was watching the... Uh, don't save that for what you're watching, but it was watching a Dana Carvey show related well, thing. Well, some, something tells me you're going to be all dingly dingly do, and I'm going to be all rupa tupa tupa. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, we get that on target. At, at the end target. of this nightmare, just as you know, Freddy's about to pounce, uh, Jesse you know, wakes up in bed sweating. Uh, something that we're going to see many, many, many times in this film. It was the 80s, so people did sweat a lot in movies. <laughs> That's what the decade was known for. And also, people were um, uh, uh, hairy, right? Had hairy chest and stuff. Well, not Jesse. All... Jesse is smooth. Well, well, Jesse's smooth, but as a whole, in the 80s, you still had, like, the, the hairy... Uh, oh, what what's his name? Smokey... Uh, or, yeah, Burt shit, Reynolds. the bandit. Burt Reynolds, yeah. Like, the Burt Reynolds Wolverine chest hair thing. Um but yeah, but we get but we get a nice intro to Jesse and his family. They they've recently moved into the to the house from the first film. Uh, you know, there there is a bit of there's some there's some you can clearly tell that there's some sort of low level tension between the the members of the family. There the there father, is, but it's it's nowhere near the. Um, you meant you made a good point last week, Thrasher, in that the um, both the mother and the father were flawed people. In, in the first movie, but in this one, the mom and dad are less um, less less tortured, I guess. Don't like the the dad is just a real square. Like, go back to your room, son. And and the yeah, mother, yeah, it's sort of flat. I don't like her as much. Yeah, there's no alcoholism. There's no abuse. It's that's just, right. No, no divorce. Just the yeah. most boring type of family. <laughs> right, which um, in a way makes it funnier. Their react, their their mundane reactions to the crazy things that happen to us. Oh yeah, with the uh, we'll get there with the but parrot it, and stuff. But and he also has he also has a younger sister. Now, did you notice what the younger sister was eating during that breakfast scene? Fu Man Chews. A Fu Manchu parody <laughs> of the Count Chocolate Boo Berry Frankenberry Yummy Yummy Fruit Brute line of cereals. I, I love wish that. that existed. How how has Think Geek not released a fake cereal <laughs> right. called Fu Manchu's? That's There's, right. Or even even a T-shirt. 
I buy a t-shirt with Fu Manchu's on it. And it also leads to a little thing, because like the, the the little sister's like digging around for the prize, and the prize are these long Fu Manchu fingernails, but she does this like Freddy Krueger hand motion with them. It's, I think, really effective. I never even made that connection, but you're right. Yeah, they're, they're setting stuff up. Um, Although there's because, also, uh, there's also a, a yeah. brief continuity error in that scene. Where, I don't know what if you it? noticed this, but when uh, when she does the claw rake, the camera angle she's got all she's got all five of the nails on. When the camera angle angle changes, she only has four nails on, and she puts the fifth one on. I always knew they called you Continuity Willie for a reason. Very true. I I, uh, I earned that back in my days as a movie hobo, riding the reels across this great land of ours. The reels, the rails, the reels. That that's okay. that's where movie hobos go. The more you know. Um, so we also get to see Jesse at school in gym, and he kind of horses around with his. Um, let me look up the name of his friend. I don't remember this. Um, Ron is his friend. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, played by Robert Russler. Uh, we should mention Mark Patton plays Jesse, and um, I, I want to talk about their characters a bit and their performances because Jesse, uh, Mark Patton playing Jesse Walsh. Um, is really over the top, and he and he has a very uh, a womanly scream, a hilarious girly scream. Like I couldn't hit those notes. I'm kind of jealous. And and then, on the other hand, his friend Ron, played by Robert Russler, is a more uh, grounded performance, like something you'd see in a sex comedy, like Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> like he comes across as a very real high school guy. And Jesse is this. Screeching cartoon character. Um, what do you think? Of, what do you think of the, those two? Well, I feel like that goes straight. Like I think, I think those 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 choices. I, I would presume deliberate <laughs> choices by the director and the actors. I think yeah. they do work. I think they're very effective. I like the contrast between the two characters. It is kind of an opposite attract sort of thing. It is. But right off the bat, there is something, if not effeminate, there is something very camp about the character of Jesse. Yeah. Later on, we get a scene where. He wants to see his girlfriend, uh, Lisa, who's played by Kim Myers, who looks like a spinning image of a young Meryl Streep. Yes! Oh, yes, it's she so does. freak. In fact, I thought it was a young Meryl Streep the first time I saw this film. Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you have, like, Johnny Depp was in the first one. Um, <laughs> I think Brecken Myers in part six. Um, yeah, it's not so strange that. Has Meryl Streep ever done a horror movie? That's a good question. Uh, well, Actually, we, wait. Was she in Witches in Eastwick? Yes. No. She, or or it, Death well, Becomes no, Her. Glenn Close was in Single White Female. Death Becomes Her? That's sort of a horror yeah, movie. Death, that's Death a Becomes Her. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So she was in that. Um, oh, good yeah, going. You're saying, so there's, yeah. Yeah, there's a scene he wants, to visit his, he wants to visit his friend, and you know the father's like, the, no, you're, you're not going to clean up your room. room so he goes upstairs unpack, to clean his room, yeah. and we get this little musical montage of it's him great. singing, dancing, lip-syncing, and cleaning. And there's all this stuff, like he closes a drawer with his butt. There's this yeah. thing where he has a pop yeah. gun and he does this like dance with it. And at first he's using it like a microphone, but then it becomes a surrogate penis. Right. Uh, one of the board games in his closet is Probe. Yes, which I did a little research on. It's it's sort of a it's sort of a guessing game where everybody has a secret word, and you're trying to figure out what everyone's secret word is. Oh, that sounds sort of fun. Um, but yeah, again, talking about gay subtext. Um, so, it, 
So this yeah. is what I realized watching this is this occurred to me watching this scene, and it does play out for the rest of the movie. Um, Mark Patton, he all he has the final girl role. His body is, uh, is sexualized right. and fetishized the yep. same way the final girl would be in any other slasher film. Good, good. That's right. Um, it also the the actor Mark Patton that plays Jesse is gay. Um, I I'm not sure if he was coming out at the time or not, but in fact he was a bit traumatized. Um, you know, he thought this film would be his big break, and although it made a lot of money, it. Um, I guess people's reaction to this film and and everything it just became sort of too much, and he, he sort of had a, a bit of a uh, a breakdown. And he came out with the book Jesse's Lost Journal, which I'd love to read really? about not just dealing with uh, making this film, but dealing with his homosexuality and, and coming out and how it relates to this film. Um, and there's also a documentary uh, coming out, I think, uh, if not late this year, then early next year. Um, focusing on Mark Patton. I, I don't recall what the name of it is, but it's um, it, it looks really, really fascinating. Man, that, that's something I want to check out, too. Yeah. Um, so, you have that. I think uh, what else is going on? So, you also have this relationship with, with the gym teacher is a big part of the beginning of the movie, right? The first half, where he, oh, he looks, yeah. he acts a bit like a Arlie Ermy in Full Metal Jacket, although that came out after this film, so maybe that's not. But, he, you know, he's like a drill sergeant. Well, he's this tough, this tough as nails, take no shit gym teacher who, who can't tell the difference between kind of tough love motivation and just being an outright bully. I mean, he really is just treating, treating uh, Jesse and his friend like crap. Did you ever use the showers at your gym in school? Uh, only once. I never did. Because they were gross and in poor repair, oh, and yeah. I could see the people that would take the showers would get fucked with so much. I'm like, I'd rather be smelly for the rest of the day and just wash up when I get home. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's simple logistics, but right? Yeah, and, and also, I, I wasn't on a sports team either, so I mean, that would be different, I guess. But and, and what's so weird is that there's there's even a bit where like the, where uh, where Jesse's friend jokes about how like the well the the you know the coach the you know the coach is a pervert. He just does this because he wants to watch us. But then that's like that's borne out. It is, yeah. It's it's, it's unexpected and dark. Uh, I like I like it. It's. <laughs> And that's and that's actually one of the interesting things because like until until the end, Freddy's not really killing anybody. He's just you know, terrorizing terrorizing Jesse because he you know he need for whatever reason he needs Jesse to be kind of his vessel into the the physical world. But um, do, do do we want to skip to the whole Coach Snyder thing? Yes. Yes. Let's All right. So, so there, someone even makes you know that makes a crack that there's like an S and M bar, which I love that this small town can support its own S and M bar subculture. But yeah, there is like this swingers club, and Jesse Jesse has starts sleepwalking because of his interactions with Freddie, and he sleepwalks mm-hmm. to the bar and starts hanging out there. And the coach picks him up, takes him back to the school, and like the coach makes him do all the things that he was doing in gym class, but in a really like sexualized way, sends Jesse to the showers, but then Freddie telekinetically attacks the coach. And this is the thing, like at this point, the coach has pretty much been established 
as a pedophile and a sexual abuser. So this is one of those horror movies where the monster suddenly becomes the hero. Right, and we'll see that to a greater degree in the later film, where Freddy is basically the main character, and you're rooting for him. Um, but yeah, he gets sort of hogtied by uh, jump ropes. By jump ropes ugh, against the shower, naked. You, you see quite a bit of his ass, and he—it's—it's it's a really disturbing death scene. Yeah, and like the tap, the towels fly in, and like that's right. Yeah, he gets all that ad, ad slapping, ones. slapping. Yeah, uh, and, and you get the only incidence of nudity in this film, which is full backle male nudity. I've never heard the word backle male nudity. I have to use that in my daily conversation. I think um, but, I think yeah. I lifted that from The Simpsons. There's some line about a scene containing full frontal and backle nudity. Uh, in middle school, I had a pirated version of the Simpsons screensaver for Windows, nice. and you could adjust a slider. One of the screensavers was um, Homer Simpson mowing the lawn, and as he'd mow parts of the lawn, you'd see your bet, your uh, desktop image revealed behind it. It was kind of clever, and you could adjust a slider for the amount of butt cleavage. <laughs> it, it was a, a very witty touch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a disturbing scene, and I felt a little sorry for the coach, even though the coach was such an asshole at the beginning. Well, it's a much more horrific... Because like in, yeah, in the first yeah. movie, when, when any of the kids died, it was essentially just kind of a stabbing. But this is a prolonged, torturous death as he's being sure, beaten yeah. and he's under the scalding water. Um, and the actor and, and really then, sells it, too. He does, Yeah, it's... Uh, and then it's also kind of like warped because like then later that same night the police found Jesse wandering naked in the streets and like bring him bring him back to his house and the way the scene is handled it's almost like they found him cruising but don't want a scandal in their small town so they're being as delicate about it as possible but i mean that and he's a a prime suspect and i love the scene he goes back to his parents and they say, like, what are you taking? Please tell me you're on drugs. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not taking any drugs. And they're like, don't don't screw with me, son. you got to be on what, what you're on. You're taking the wacky tobacco. What you doing? Like, it's just so... <laughs> it was everything it was short after of... school our, special. It's like, are, are you hepped up on goofballs? <laughs> no, oh. it must, you, you must be taking that nuke that's so popular down there in the streets. <laughs> It's Kane. He's the one responsible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so something else we got to talk about in the, in the home life. There's this wonderful scene where, like the, because that's the other thing is that Freddie is, for all intents and purposes, haunting the house. A lot of Jesse's dreams mm-hmm. involve Freddie yep. yep. being in the basement, and that's where he finds Freddie's glove because he finds that concealed evidence from the first film. And like the thermostat keeps overheating the house. But there's a great, there's a crazy scene where. After adjusting the thermostat, you know they they've got these two lovebirds, and the mother had has put a uh, a shawl over the, I guess that's what it's called, a shawl or a hood over their cage for the night. Yeah. And there's all these horrible noises that come from the cage, like a dead bird flies out of it, but then the live bird flies out of it, and there's this z- I guess yeah zany bird chase sequence in the house. Yeah, they you mentioned Evil Dead too. I could see. I love we get all the first person shots of the birds swooping down. Those are really well done. Uh huh. Um, but also, I believe the the a live bird is uh, on fire, right? Well, yeah, Eventually, at the height of it, the live bird explodes in a fireball. <laughs> and, and they're the so dad... desperate for a logical explanation, they, they, I they love go this. on a hunt for a gas leak that goes nowhere. Yeah, and I, the, the father is convinced, like, <laughs> what, what did you do, like, that the boy did it? 
and then he so tries mad. to. He's like, "Here, help, help me move the oven." I mean, that, that feels like a real dad moment, right? You know, Here, it, son, it is, help me move. Is. Help me move this heavy thing to find a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Um, yeah, it's it's really quite endearing in its own way. And, um, and things kind of build, you know, for there because like Jesse, Jesse, you know, starts talking with the. Uh, Talking with uh, with uh, you know his friend Cheryl, and one of the one of the really interesting turning points in this movie is they find the diary that was being kept in the first film. That's right. Yeah, and I wonder if they approached Heather Langenkamp for a cameo in this one. Well, I don't know because the, well they established that she's I believe they established that she's dead. What? No, yeah, they remember, contradict that pretty there's, quickly. There's a later, there's a scene where Jesse's kind of uncovered the history of the house, and he's, you know, did they tell you a murder happened here? Did they tell you that girl was was trapped in here and died? Didn't? Did they tell you that her mother committed suicide? Hmm. Because apparently, so again, this kind of goes into trying to decipher in the first film what was a dream and what was reality. But apparently, at least according to this film, the the mother dying. That was just a dream. She didn't die, but she did take her own life later. I do think as far as, like, canon goes for what it's worth, this film is pretty much ignored in future films. Which, which I, is a shame. I'd love to see more yeah. things done with, done with this. Done with a lot of these ideas. Can you imagine, like, some sort of modern sequel, like, 35 years later, where Jesse and Heather meet up and team up against Freddy? That would be bananas. <laughs> That would be intriguing. It would be the Avengers of Freddy. Movies. Yeah, yeah, the Avengers and Freddy Krueger. Uh, you get, um, yeah, geez, you get Patricia. Yeah. Although the whole journal, so they do learn a lot of information about Freddy Krueger from the journal. They do find, they do find the old power plant with the boiler room where Freddy died, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. Um, one, the one thing that does, um, the one thing that. Or it's two things that stand out. Uh, one is, you know, as they go through the, the journal, they do, like, find her plan on how to defeat Freddy, which we already know from the first film won't work. So I'm almost wondering why it's there other than to give false hope for people who had forgotten the first movie. But two, they start to imply that Jesse's psychic. I don't know if you caught that. I did not know. Um, yeah, when they go, because that that's like the whole hmm. reason they go to the they go to the plant is is the the girls like okay, just feel the vibrations, you know, seek it out, and you know he's able to find that uh, he he finds that storage locker, and he like he finds seeing the places that are important to Freddy's history. This is one of those films where the more you watch it, the more things you pick up, even though on the surface it seems um, silly and inappropriate. I think so. You, Yeah. Um, I, I always... The, the, the part I find most off-putting is the uh, the massacre at the pool party. Oh, that's... Yeah, that's so... Warped. Yeah, one of the, the girls having a having a big pool party, and, like, it's a big barbecue. And I really I really love it that the parents are like, well, I guess we're tired. We're going to go to bed. You kids enjoy yourselves. <laughs> and Like, you know they're going to trash the pool, right? I mean, yeah. It, that that yeah, never but, ends well. But, like, yeah, a lot of really disturbing stuff starts happening, such as, like, Jesse... Jesse's finally alone uh, with... Uh, Jesse's finally alone with uh, with Lisa. Uh, Aunt, they have with Lisa, 
yeah. and like they're and you know they're starting they're they're starting to 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 get it on and like Freddie is like a, is emerging from him and we get that grotesque tongue scene really yeah. establishing the tongue is is Freddie's signature but it's just it just gets so but yeah, you know, eventually, you know, you know, he tries. He runs away. He he breaks into his friend's bedroom to pull yes. the whole "you got to keep me from falling asleep" gambit, which sadly doesn't work. Freddie is born out of his body in a wonderfully grotesque scene. Yeah, and then it just becomes a straight up massacre. I mean, it's Freddie in that one like five minute segment. Freddy uh, makes because like Freddy hasn't really attacked anyone since the the opening bus scene. We get a whole movie's worth of kills in five minutes. You do, and it's uh, I, I think it's a scene that's really well shot because you get a sense of the chaos going on, and uh, Robert England loves seems to love to play Freddy as he's cackling and he's chewing it up. It's great. Yeah, definitely chewing up the scenery. And beyond that, though, Freddy gets a hell of a lot of powers in this segment, though. He's telekinetic, he can electrify fences, he can boil water. Yeah, I think that, I like the boiling water. I don't mind that one, but it's, uh, yeah, what a way to go, though. <laughs> and I do like, and I do like afterwards, uh, you know, when, when Jesse is just covered in blood. Yep. The, that's just that looks horrific. There's the way they have his palms completely covered in blood, the spatters all over him. So, are you satisfied with the how this movie ends with the final confrontation? Um, halfway because everything leading up to the final confrontation, I love. I love mm-hmm. the whole thing. You know, I love Lisa going to the boiler room. I love the whole thing with the dogs with the human faces. That's really disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Even even the rat puppet, as puppety and campy as it is, I think it's really disturbing and used pretty well. Um, but the whole the whole power of love thing, where you know she she gets Jesse to come back out of Freddy. I'm watch. I'm watching that, and the only thing I can think is, well, we know this isn't going to work. We know right. that this is not going to work. That this is just going to be temporary, or it's Freddie totally with them. Which, which of course it is, because after you know the whole touching scene in the bo- in the boiler room on fire, where Jesse emer- Jesse emerges from a burned up Freddy the same way, the same way Lewis and Dana emerge from the terror talks in Ghostbusters. <laughs> You know, we then yeah. we then flash forward. It's a just like the, the end of the first movie. It's a bright sunny day. Everything's right in the world. Jesse gets on the bus. He's super happy, but the bus driver turns out to be Freddy and drives them all into this wasteland. <laughs> yep, it ends as it begins, a- and ends just like the first film. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, really, really hammering home the idea that there is no escape. Uh, which does mean if there's if there's flat out no escape from Freddy, if you're going to make any more sequels, you've really got to make the characters interesting and likable because we know that they're all going to die no matter what. Yep. Um, they, they did offer Wes Craven this second film, by the way, and he didn't want to do it so quickly. He wanted to. He had other stuff he wanted to do. And then when he saw what the movie was, he was so upset by it. He got involved a bit with the script for the third one. But um, yeah, I give this a sequel. Yes, this is a very interesting, very weird sequel. I, you could almost call it like a spinoff or a standalone film, really, because it doesn't tie in too much to the 
other it makes reference to the first movie but it's not slavish about it well, and well, um, it's it's through no fault of its own that it's not that it's not referenced I mean I think I think this is a very right. worthy addition to the franchise it is it is and uh, it I think it's been getting uh, reappraised with um, some you know interesting uh, readings on it and, and you could watch it with or without the homosexual subtext although I think it's um, difficult to ignore um, and that just makes the film more interesting. Uh, in, in one of the documentaries, um, Robert England refers to this film as a sort of psychosexual circus that was greater appreciated in Europe than in the United States. Huh. I, w- I would like to know how these movies were received overseas. Yeah, you never really find that stuff out, do you? Um, what about, um, you, you mentioned earlier, there's sort of like the SMM bar that um, Jesse goes to. Yeah, the SM bar kind of swingers club, yeah. Did, did that strike you as over the top in its portrayal? I, I, if anything, it was subdued, because remember, this, this was the era where every gritty cop drama or cop comedy had an extended strip club scene with full nudity. Yeah, it just wasn't that, usually not a, a gay bar, right? It yeah, didn't say is, this, this was a gay, a gay bar, though. It's, it's a swingers. Yeah, it's like, that's okay. Every, fair enough. It's, it's more right. of a swingers club sort of thing. Yeah, everyone's going after everybody. But like, I feel, I feel like it, it is, it is, it is shocking that there is no nudity in that scene. I guess in yeah, that way, like it they, is much more realistic. It's just a lot of mm-hmm. slubby people with bad hair wearing leather hanging out. Right. I um, it, you know, it vaguely reminds me of a. When I first moved to Portland, Oregon, 11 years ago, I was walking uh, on a date in Chinatown, walking around, and there's uh, a, um, a a well-known local gay bar in the district, cool. and it was like one in the morning, and uh, there was just a bunch of it must have been like a theme night or something, but there was like five guys in their tidy whities sitting at the bar wearing nothing but the underwear and cowboy hats, <laughs> and it was very surreal. I just couldn't believe what I was looking at, and I. Uh, a music video is about to break out. Yeah, it kind of looked like that. It was like five, five of the naked cowboys from Times Square. Um, <laughs> it's really quite something. Um, so yeah, um, that's Nightmare on Elm Street two. Now we're gonna do pitch a sequel. I think. Uh, do you mind if I start? Oh no, go right ahead. Although I do want to say I do agree with you. Sequel, yes, all the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said that. Okay. Um, so this one ends. Just as it begins, we've had two movies end with, uh, so I, I'm going to pretend like uh, the gimmick with Nightmare on Elm Street is it, it's uh, a different teen every time, and because of that, we, we've seen uh, um, a white female in the first one, a white male in the second one. Uh, this third one I would set in, um, in a different country, and I, I would set it with a... Uh, in uh, in China, and would incorporate a lot of sort of Chinese ghosts and the uh, elements of Chinese mythology in the, in the dream world, and in uh, also because um, my assumption is Freddy Krueger somehow is able to haunt outside of it doesn't have to take place in Elm Street, but maybe there's like Elm Street in Chinese or something in, in this part of China, right? And so it's a Chinese version of Freddy Krueger, so he'd look a bit, um, look a bit different. And okay, like, you see, now I'm imagining Freddy Krueger as Fu Manchu. 
not not Superman too as, as much, but just um, like with, with robes and yeah, I'd, I'd have to do research to actually have a good picture of what he looks like. But you would have that go on, and um, the movie would be in uh, in Chinese with English subtitles, and it would involve thoughtfully a lot of Chinese culture, and it would. Uh, sort of the the main part of the script is the main character would also end up being a, a protester against the uh, the, the Chinese um, communist government, and you'd have some sort of analog to the Tiananmen Square incident, hmm. where they um, yeah, so, or maybe he has nightmares where like Freddy Krueger is driving the tank and going to run him over making tank puns. Um, it, would, it would be very strange, and it would just be called Street of the Elms, A Nightmare. <laughs> See, now I'm imagining Freddy Cougar driving a tank. Tanks for nothing, buddy! <laughs> Alright, well, my, my own uh, pitch a sequel. I've got an idea for another Jesse-centric uh, okay. on Elm Street movie. However, I'm going to save that because in true franchise fashion, that wouldn't happen till down the road when they want to harken back to earlier segments. So my own is based on a real-world phenomena. There are people who collect serial killer memorabilia. And so the idea is that, that Freddy has sort of become one of the great American serial killers. You know, he killed 20 kids. Perhaps, you know, they find evidence that he mm. killed more, and that's just the 20 that they knew about. It might have happened over several states throughout his life. So there are people, they're like, quote, for lack of a better term, Freddy fans, people who collect things important to the Freddy Krueger mythology. Uh, there's there's people who own, like, some of his extra striped sweaters. There are people, there's a guy, uh, there's a guy uh, who owns the glove. There's a guy who owns the hat, a guy who owns the door to the boiler, and so on and so forth. Well, the, per, the guy who owns the Freddy Krueger glove dies mysteriously, and this leads to this really intense sort of bidding war between the other collectors. They they all start approaching this guy's heir about we want the glove. You gotta sell us the glove. And the guy's like not sure it's right to profit off of, you know, serial killer memorabilia, so he doesn't have any plans to, to do things with his glove. But essentially, Freddy starts haunting the dreams of the people who collect his stuff. And just like in this one, he's not trying to kill them. He's trying to inspire them. Uh He's trying to get these, you know, Freddy Krueger superfans to get all of his memorabilia in one place. Uh, and inevitably, the superfans are going to start killing each other to acquire these artifacts until finally there's only one superfan left. And he puts on Freddy's sweater, puts on Freddy's hat, puts on Freddy's glove. And he is so mentally messed up that he's decided that he's going to continue Freddy's work on Earth. And Freddy just thinks this is great because that's what Freddy wanted all along. Uh, I'm going to call this. Uh, I'm going to call this Nightmare on Elm Street uh, Three: Freddy's Legacy. What was that last part you cut off there? Oh, the, it's going to be Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Freddy's Legacy. Or did something else get cut off? No, no, that was it. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, and this is something that occurred to me. So, in the first film. He's referred to as Fred Krueger, and he's credited as Fred Krueger. But in this, it's Freddy. What do you think caused that? 
Um, or do you think it's just because the the Freddie rhyme is one? I think I think it's the Freddie. I think it's the Freddie rhyme, and maybe <clears throat> the writer David Chaskin realized Freddy Krueger has a better ring to it than Fred Krueger. It's less formal. It's um, kind of playful. It's like the way Fred Krueger. Uh, I just said it. Freddy Krueger plays with his victims. Um, it sounds. I, I just think it sounds better, and maybe they realized that, or maybe they were playing with things they weren't sure, and like let's call him Freddy and see how people react, because it even says Freddy in the title, right? Freddy's Revenge. Okay. So, um, if, if it was called Fred's Revenge, <laughs> that, that would, yeah, Fred's Revenge would be kind of uh, <laughs> kind of lame, right? So, can, can we talk about that cover, by the way? Yes. Yeah. Let me pull it up. Okay. So, so or the so the poster. It's Jesse and, and Lisa, presumably. She doesn't call. Well, no, I guess she does look a bit like Lisa. They're Little they're bit. in they're in a bathroom, which has nothing to do with this movie. Nope. And he can see his reflection is this twisted skull face, but with Freddy's glove. And there's a raven that isn't in the movie in the background. I think it's a good poster. It's um, I think I, I like it better than the poster for the original Elm Street film. Uh, even though it's, good, it, it's, it's still off model, it's a good poster. It's just not reflective of the film. Although, what <laughs> do you think of the tagline of "The Man of Your Dreams is Back"? Cute. It's kind of winking. I think it works. Yeah, it's cute. It's fine. Um, I mean, I mean, what else could it be? This time, Freddy's getting revenge. <laughs> revenge is a dish best served bold or something. Not bad. Not bad. Okay, if, if you have any ideas for good uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 um, taglines, listeners, uh, shoot us an email sequelcast at gmail.com or, or just send us a message on Twitter at sequelcast2. Um, now we're going to move on to what you watching. It's, you know, by the time this episode comes out, it will have been Halloween, so I assume you might have seen a, a horror movie or two? Is that how you do things? Uh, yeah, I, I revisited. I, I revisited one of the great terrible horror movies. That is uh, the creeping terror, <laughs> directed and produced by and starring Vic Savage. So, so the cre- the creeping terror, it it is. It's one of those legendarily bad horror movies that I think is only remembered today because it was used on Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Uh, and although it also appears, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, movie di- uh, direct, or it came from Hollywood, but it's also it's also mentioned in that. But the short version is, it's this this cheap horror movie where this spaceship crashes in the Ozarks, and the military goes to investigate. It ends. They end up releasing this this alien monster, and the alien monster is essentially like a cross between a slice of pizza and a giant slug and it eats people and you do see people getting eaten but it's such an improbable monster because it just slowly moves along there's no way in hell it could catch anybody and in fact most of the kill scenes a person sees it starts (coughs) screaming and the camera cuts and suddenly the monster's on top of them in a way it couldn't possibly be and it sucks the people up whole what is the what's the color of the monster does it look like a slime or oh it's black and white Oh, oh, okay. It, it looks, it looks kind of like its body. Most of its body looks kind of like tie-dyed canvas. Uh, most of the dialogue uh, is dubbed in and recorded after the fact. Uh, and the other, and the other thing is, there's two of these monsters. When they finally defeat the monster, 
to pad out the film's running time, a second monster is released from the spaceship and goes on another mini killing spree. So, uh, and you watched just the the pure film. You didn't see the mystery science theater version. Well, I've seen I've seen both. But when you watched it recently, which one was it? Uh, it was uh, it was the uh, mystery science theater version. Oh, I see. Um, which uh, which who was the uh, crew member? Oh, Mike. It was a it was one of the Mike Nelson episodes. Mike, so it's the Sci-Fi Channel years, right? Uh, no, this I believe. Uh, no, I believe this was the final, uh, the final uh, Comedy Central season. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I always associate him with Sci-Fi Channel. But the film, but the, the whole reason I sought this out though is that a recent I- uh, issue of Film Facts had uh, an article about the history of the film and the making of the film, and it really is fascinating how this movie got made. It was written by the brother-in-law of a famous screenwriter and that's kind of how they got backing for the movie. (laughs) They kind of dropped his last name in such a way (laughs) that people thought it was it was the big time screenwriter and not his his brother-in-law. It reminds me of a story um, Quentin Tarantino's dad and Al Pacino's dad uh, both starred in a direct-to-video movie, and on the the cover huh. of the box it says Pacino Tarantino. Oh well, it's like what is it? Is it like Operation 007 with with Sean Connery's brother? Is that the one with his son? No, his brother. Oh, um, yeah, I believe that's that's Connery's brother. Okay, I I know in a recent BBC miniseries, Sean, I believe I have this right, Sean Connery's son plays Ian Fleming or something. Huh. I could have that wrong, but anyhow, and, and, and of course, how can we forget the uh, 007 pastiche starring everyone's favorite Billy D. Williams? Oh yeah, Double O Soul. Is that right? Might be. Uh, I've seen the a clip from it on YouTube and I really need to track that one down it looks very funny I think uh, Billy D. Williams' son I think wrote it or something but um, anyhow that's neither here nor there it sounds pretty cool I'll have to check that out I haven't seen like an old fashioned horror movie um, in a while actually I lied I did so I'll talk about that instead of what I was going to plan oh this was about. A, and I just checked this is a season 6 MST3K episode okay so this is I like at the height know. of its Comedy Central reign I always think that Joel was on for longer than he was. I don't know why that is. I, I think it's just because you know he he got the ball rolling. Uh, he will forever be associated with the show, even though Mike Nelson had a longer tenure. Right. I guess you know the first. Uh, you never forget your first, right? <laughs> so, and, and, um, no matter how awful that experience was, it's not, that, it, not that Joel it, was awful. I'm making an allusion to my own horrible history. Yeah. Um, it's. I'd love to talk about mine, but I'm not. It's That's not a different show. show. That's, it uh, is. It is. Sequel cast 2 after dark. Yeah. <laughs> or, or no, or the other thing you can call it a sequel cast 2 nights, right? Like Baywatch nights. Or sequel cast blue. The, uh, the sequel That's cast the, 2 shoes diaries. The classy Cinemax version. Yeah. Uh, all right. With David Duchovny doing the wraparound segments. Um, <laughs> that would be great. Da, 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 da. 
I saw an old movie as well. I wasn't going to talk about this originally, but um, you got me thinking about it since you talked about a black and white film. Um, and not too long ago, I, on Amazon, I picked up a, a great deal. on there, There's a 30-film set of all the Universal monster movies from the 30s and 40s. How and much is that? I got it for hmm, 70 bucks. I think it originally retailed for 200 and this is like the second version time they've packaged the movies together and in this version they added some movies that weren't there before including a lot of the Abbott and Costello films amusingly I, enough I want to get that so bad it's, I love those movies yeah it's it's uh, now as far as extras go they really don't have a lot uh, aside from the first films in the series but um, that's not why you get these pictures it's to to own and love these, these classics of the horror genre is something we love a lot I mean we're talking about Freddy, Nightmare on Elm Street stuff now, but I'd love to cover some Universal Horror Pictures sometime on this program. Um, but anyhow, I thought I'd start with a, a monster I've never seen before, and I, I watched the original Invisible Man, starring Claude Rains, based on nice. the novel by H.G. Wells. And I also saw they had a really good documentary on the disc, which uh, was useful, because uh, I didn't know much about how they did those effects. And uh, the special effects, I think, at least for the Invisible Man stuff, really hold up. It, it does... It's quite a bit of technical wizardry, how they did that. And um, I love that the Invisible Man is an asshole. What a delight. He's he's not likable. He's just killing people. He kills, like, dozens of people on a train. And on the other hand, it's like the medicine makes him mad, right? And uh, in in the duck... It's also directed by James Whale, who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And there's a a great story on uh, the documentary on that DVD where um, James Whale is, is doing Invisible Man and uh, he's trying to cast the lead and he's having a hard time because given the title, right, he's going to be invisible most of the film or wrapped up in bandages <laughs> yeah. and uh, you need someone with a distinctive voice and uh, he got a um, audition tape from a theater actor who um, did a real hammy, terrible performance. But as soon as he heard it, he goes, that's it. And, of course, it was Claude Rains. You know, so I have, to, I have to ask, have you ever seen the uh, sketch comedy film Amazon Women on the Moon? It's been years, but yes. Do, do you remember the Invisible Man sketch from that? Nope, nope. It's it's quite nice because it is a, it is a perfect tribute to the Claude Rains uh, Invisible Man. Uh, I think it's Ed Begley plays plays oh, him. It's called like yeah. Son of the Invisible Man. Okay, and he does a really good Claude Rains impression. And the the pre the premise is that he's failed to replicate the invisibility formula so he's just running around naked but no <laughs> one has the heart to tell him so everyone keeps acting like there's an invisible person in the room oh that's funny it's like oh help help my utensils is floating away oh help help <laughs> he's just and it's so great because he does all the things Claude Rain does but it's comical if you can see the person manipulating the objects naked Right. Um, I, I did see what was sort of a, not a remake, but a modern version of Invisible Man, um, which has a sequel, uh, Hollow Man. Oh, yeah. Right, Kevin with, with Kevin Bacon and directed by the great Paul Verhoeven, although it's not a very good film. Um, yeah, and, and also the documentary mentions some of the sequels, which are part of that box set. I need to 
go through those and, and check those out. But I, I didn't realize a few of them were World War II propaganda movies. Some, several of them, uh, yeah, some of the Invisible were part Agent of that, that war or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I believe Vincent Price is in the second one or something. So, um, yeah, pretty pretty cool. And my wife actually watched the end of the Invisible Man with me because I just said she, I tend to get up early, um, as you know, and uh, she was just getting out of bed, and uh, I said, oh, we know can you know watch the last ten minutes of this, and it ended up being like thirty minutes. I miscounted the time, <laughs> but she had a fun time watching it, and she's like, oh, you know, the acting seems better in these old movies. I'm like, yeah, and they they come from theater background, and I mean, this was filmed in England, I think, and it's all yeah, you have a lot of very broad. Uh, humor with the the family that runs the bar slash hotel. It's sort of a bar breakfast and bed thing. It's like a pub in the front and then breakfast and bed in the back. And uh, <laughs> that's the way I do it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, well, I tell you. Be sure. Be sure to. Uh, squeeze the links to get out the extra grease. <laughs> oh, that's, and that has been the horrible bed and breakfast skit, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Um, God, on that note, yeah, um, I'm excited to see more, uh, work through more classic Universal horror pictures. Um, I don't know if I have the heart to go through more Invisible Man movies at the moment, but I might switch over to The Mummy. Um, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So next time on Sequel Cast 2, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to take a very special deviation. Um, this wasn't originally planned, but after we saw this thing, uh, I think it's going to foster so much discussion, we decided to give an episode of its own. Why don't you talk about it? Uh, yes, so we watched the first episode of the syndicated horror anthology series, Freddy's Nightmares, which was sort of a dark, horrific Twilight Zone hosted by Freddy Krueger, but what's special about it is that the first episode was the Freddy Krueger origin story directed by Toby Hooper, who uh, regrettably has recently passed, so we decided, since we found it online, we had to watch it, we had to make an episode about it. Right, it's also directed by the uh, late Toby Hooper. Um, very excited to talk about that. And then uh, going forward, in case you're following along and want to watch the movies ahead of us, uh, after that we'll be talking about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and to end our, our look at the uh, initial Nightmare on Elm Street films with Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. So um, check me out on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Follow the show on Facebook, just search SequelCast2, and please leave us a review on iTunes, just search SequelCast2, and uh, type your review in there. You can also do that on the podcast app, and you can listen to us on Stitcher. And hey, we've also got a Patreon, if you like episodes early, and goodies. Who doesn't like goodies? In bed. Da-da-da. Okay, for SequelCast2, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying... You're the muscle. I'm the brains. Not that, Freddy. (laughs) No. I'm going to go see my best friend and leave my girlfriend and break into his window because he has such lovely muscles. Oh, no, the bird's exploding. Son, why do you you always cover your bird with gasoline before you put him to bed? You know, I feel like we... 
we need to play that cheesy old uh, Valentino song from the credits. Did you ever see a dream walking? Well, I did. Did you ever hear a dream talking? Well, I did. Did you ever have a dream thrilling? Will you be mine? Oh, it's so grand and it's so fun. Did you ever see a dream? SequelCast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at BattleshipPretension.com. The theme song to SequelCast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at MarkWithTheSea.com. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for SequelCast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 